Life of Mr. George Herbert by Isaac Walton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. George Herbert was born the third day of April in the year of our redemption, 1593. The place of his birth was near to the town of Montgomery, and in that castle that did then bear the name of that town and county. That castle was then a place of state and strength, and had been successively happy in the family of the Herberts, who had long possessed it, and with it a plentiful estate, and hearts as liberal to their poor neighbors. A family that had been blessed with men of remarkable wisdom, and a willingness to serve their country, and, indeed, to do good to all mankind, for which they were eminent. But, alas, this family did in the late rebellion suffer extremely in their estates, and the heirs of that castle saw it laid level with that earth that was too good to bury those wretches that were the cause of it. The father of our George was Richard Herbert, the son of Edward Herbert, knight, the son of Richard Herbert, knight, the son of the famous Sir Richard Herbert of Colebrook, in the county of Monmouth, Banneret, who was the youngest brother of the memorable William Herbert, Earl of Pembroke, that lived in the reign of our King Edward the Fourth. His mother was Magdalene Newport, the youngest daughter of Sir Richard, and sister to Sir Francis Newport of High Arkle, in the county of Salop, Knight, and grandfather of Francis Lord Newport, now comptroller of His Majesty's household a family that for their loyalty have suffered much in their estates, and seen the ruin of that excellent structure where their ancestors have long lived and been memorable for their hospitality. This mother of George Herbert, of whose person, wisdom, and virtue I intend to give a true account in a seasonable place, was the happy mother of seven sons and three daughters, which she would often say was Job's number and Job's distribution, and as often bless God that they were neither defective in their shapes or in their reason, and very often reprove them that did not praise God for so great a blessing. I shall give the reader a short account of their names, and not say much of their fortunes. Edward, the eldest, was first made Knight of the Bath, at that glorious time of our late Prince Henry's being installed Knight of the Garter, and after many years' useful travel, and the attainment of many languages, he was by King James sent ambassador-resident to the then French King Louis the Thirteenth. There he continued about two years, but he could not subject himself to a compliance with the humours of the Duke de Luines, who was then the great and powerful favourite at court, so that, upon a complaint to our king, he was called back into England in some displeasure. But at his return he gave such an honourable account of his employment, and so justified his comportment to the duke and all the court, 
that he was suddenly sent back upon the same embassy from which he returned in the beginning of the reign of our good King Charles I, who made him first baron of Castle Island, and not long after of Cherbury, in the county of Salop. He was a man of great learning and reason, as appears by his printed book, De Veritate, and by his History of the Reign of King Henry the Eighth, and by several other tracts. The second and third brothers were Richard and William, who ventured their lives to purchase honor in the wars of the Low Countries, and died officers in that employment. Charles was the fourth, and died fellow of New College in Oxford. Henry was the sixth, who became a menial servant to the crown in the days of King James, and hath continued to be so for fifty years, during all of which time he hath been master of the revels, a place that requires a diligent wisdom with which God has blessed him. The seventh son was Thomas, who being made captain of a ship in that fleet with which Sir Robert Mansell was sent against Algiers, did there show a fortunate and true English valor. Of the three sisters I need not say more than that they were all married to persons of worth and plentiful fortunes, and lived to be examples of virtue, and to do good in their generations." I now come to give my intended account of George, who was the fifth of those seven brothers. George Herbert spent much of his childhood in a sweet content under the eye and care of his prudent mother, and the tuition of a chaplain or tutor to him and two of his brothers in her own family, for she was then a widow, where he continued till about the age of twelve years and being at that time well instructed in the rules of grammar, he was not long after commended to the care of Dr. Neal, who was then Dean of Westminster, and by him to the care of Mr. Ireland, who was then chief master of that school, where the beauties of his pretty behavior and wit shined and became so eminent and lovely in this his innocent age, that he seemed to be marked out for piety and to become the care of heaven and of a particular good angel to guard and guide him. And thus he continued in that school till he came to be perfect in the learned languages and especially in the Greek tongue, in which he after proved an excellent critic. About the age of fifteen, he being then a king's scholar, he was elected out of that school for Trinity College in Cambridge, to which place he was transplanted about the year 1608, and his prudent mother, well knowing that he might easily lose or lessen that virtue and innocence which her advice and example had planted in his mind, did therefore procure the generous and liberal Dr. Neville, who was then Dean of Canterbury, and master of that college, to take him into his particular care, and provide him a tutor, which he did most gladly undertake, for he knew the excellences of his mother, and how to value such a friendship. This was the method of his education, till he was settled in Cambridge, where we will leave him in his study, till I have paid my promised account of his excellent mother, and I will endeavor to make it short.
I have told her birth, her marriage, and the number of her children, and have given some short account of them. I shall next tell the reader that her husband died when our George was about the age of four years. I am next to tell that she continued twelve years a widow, that she then married happily to a noble gentleman, the brother and heir of the Lord Danvers, Earl of Danby, who did highly value both her person and the most excellent endowments of her mind. In this time of her widowhood, she, being desirous to give Edward, her eldest son, such advantages of learning and other education as might suit his birth and fortune, and thereby make him the more fit for the service of his country, did, at his being of a fit age, remove from Montgomery Castle with him and some of her younger sons to Oxford, and, having entered Edward into Queen's College, and provided him a fit tutor, she commended him to his care. Yet she continued there with him, and still kept him in a moderate awe of herself, and so much under her own eye, as to see and converse with him daily. But she managed this power over him, without any such rigid sourness as might make her company a torment to her child, but with such a sweetness and compliance with the recreations and pleasures of youth, as did incline him willingly to spend much of his time in the company of his dear and careful mother, which was to her great content, for she would often say that as our bodies take a nourishment suitable to the meat on which we feed, so our souls do as insensibly take in vice by the example or conversation with wicked company, and would therefore as often say, that ignorance of vice was the best preservation of virtue, and that the very knowledge of wickedness was as tender to inflame and kindle sin, and to keep it burning. For these reasons she endeared him to her own company, and continued with him in Oxford four years, in which time her great and harmless wit, her cheerful gravity, and her obliging behavior, gained her an acquaintance and friendship with most of any eminent worth or learning that were at that time in or near that university, and particularly with Mr. John Dunn, who then came accidentally to that place in this time of her being there. It was that John Dunn, who was after Dr. Dunn, and Dean of St. Paul's London, and he, at his leaving Oxford, writ and left there in verse a character of the beauties of her body and mind of the first he says no spring nor summer beauty has such grace as i have seen in an autumnal face of the latter he says in all her words to every hearer fit you may at revels or at council sit the rest of her character may be read in his printed poems in that elegy which bears the name of the autumnal beauty, for both he and she were then past the meridian of man's life. This amity, begun at this time and place, was not an amity that polluted their souls, 
but an amity made up of a chain of suitable inclinations and virtues, an amity like that of St. Chrysostom's to his dear and virtuous Olympias, whom in his letters he calls his saint, or an amity indeed more like that of St. Hiram to his Paula, whose affection to her was such that he turned poet in his old age, and then made her epitaph, wishing all his body were turned into tongues, that he might declare her just praises to posterity. And this amity betwixt her and Mr. Dunn was begun in a happy time for him, he being then near to the fortieth year of his age, which was some years before he entered into sacred orders, a time when his necessities needed a daily supply for the support of his wife, seven children, and a family, and in this time she proved one of his most bountiful benefactors, and he as grateful an acknowledger of it. You may take one testimony for what I have said of these two worthy persons from this following letter and sonnet. Madam, your favors to me are everywhere. I use them and have them. I enjoy them at London, and leave them there, and yet find them at Mitcham. Such riddles as these become things unexpressible, and such is your goodness. I was almost sorry to find your servant here this day, because I was loath to have any witness of my not coming home last night, and indeed of my coming this morning. But my not coming was excusable, because earnest business detained me, and my coming this day is by the example of your St. Mary Madeline, who rose early upon Sunday to seek that which she loved most, and so did I. And from her and myself I return such thanks as are due to one to whom we owe all the good opinion that they whom we need most have of us. By this messenger, and on this good day, I commit the enclosed holy hymns and sonnets, which for the matter, not the workmanship, have yet escaped the fire, to your judgment, and to your protection too, if you think them worthy of it, and I have appointed this enclosed sonnet to usher them to your happy hand. Your unworthiest servant, unless your accepting him to be so, have mended him. John Dunn, Mitcham, July 11, 1607. To the Lady Maudlin Herbert of St. Mary Maudlin. Her of your name, whose fair inheritance Bethina was, and jointure Magdalo, an active faith so highly did advance that she once knew more than the church did know, the resurrection. So much good there is delivered of her that some fathers be loath to believe one woman could do this, but think these maudlins were two or three. Increase their number, lady, and their fame. To their devotion add your innocence. Take so much of the example as of the name, the latter half and in some recompense that they did harbor Christ himself a guest, harbor these hymns to his dear name addressed. J.D. These hymns are now lost to us, but doubtless they were such as they too now sing in heaven. 
There might be more demonstrations of the friendship, and the many sacred endearments, betwixt these two excellent persons, for I have many of their letters in my hand, and much more might be said of her great prudence and piety. But my design was not to write hers, but the life of her son, and therefore I shall only tell my reader that about that very day twenty years that this letter was dated and sent her, I saw and heard this Mr. John Donne, who was then Dean of St. Paul's, weep and preach her funeral sermon in the parish church of Chelsea, near London, where she now rests in her quiet grave, and where we must now leave her and return to her son, George, whom we left in his study in Cambridge. And in Cambridge we may find our George Herbert's behavior to be such that we may conclude he consecrated the first fruits of his early age to virtue and a serious study of learning, and that he did so this following letter and sonnet, which were in the first year of his going to Cambridge, sent his dear mother for a New Year's gift, may appear to some testimony. But I fear the heat of my late ague hath dried up those springs, by which scholars say the muses used to take up their habitations. However, I need not their help to reprove the vanity of those many love-poems that are daily writ and consecrated to Venus, nor to bewail that so few are writ that look towards God and heaven." For my own part, my meaning, dear mother, is in these sonnets to declare my resolution to be that my poor abilities in poetry shall be all and ever consecrated to God's glory, and I beg you to receive this as one testimony. My God, where is that ancient heat towards thee, wherewith whole shoals of martyrs once did burn, besides their other flames. Doth poetry wear Venus livery, only serve her turn? Why are not sonnets made of thee, and lays upon thine altar burnt? Cannot thy love heighten a spirit to sound out thy praise as well as any she? Cannot thy dove outstrip their cupid easily in flight? Or, since thy ways are deep, and still the same, will not a verse run smooth that bears thy name? Why doth that fire, which by thy power and might each breast does feel, no braver fuel choose than that which one day worms may chance refuse? Sure, Lord, there is enough in thee to dry oceans of ink. For, as the deluge did cover the earth, so doth thy majesty. Each cloud distills thy praise, and doth forbid poets to turn it to another use. Roses and lilies speak thee, and to make a pair of cheeks of them is thy abuse. Why should I women's eyes for crystal take? Such poor invention burns in their low mind, whose fire is wild, and doth not upward go to praise, and on thee, Lord, some ink bestow. Open the bones, and you shall nothing find in the best face but filth, when, Lord, in thee the beauty lies in the discovery. G. H. 
This was his resolution at the sending this letter to his dear mother, about which time he was in the seventeenth year of his age, and as he grew older, so he grew in learning, and more and more in favor both with God and man, insomuch that in this morning of that short day of his life he seemed to be marked out for virtue and to become the care of heaven for god still kept his soul in so holy a frame that he may and ought to be a pattern of virtue to all posterity and especially to his brethren of the clergy of which the reader may expect a more exact account in what will follow i need not declare that he was a strict student because that he was so there will be many testimonies in the future part of his life I shall therefore only tell that he was made Bachelor of Arts in the year 1611, Major Fellow of the College, March 15, 1615, and that in that year he was also made Master of Arts, he being then in the twenty-second year of his age, during all which time, all or the greatest diversion from his study, was the practice of music in which he became a great master, and of which he would say that it did relieve his drooping spirits, compose his distracted thoughts, and raise his weary soul so far above the earth that it gave him an earnest of the joys of heaven before he possessed them. And it may be noted that from his first entrance into the college the generous Dr. Neville was a cherisher of his studies, and such a lover of his person, his behavior, and the excellent endowments of his mind, that he took him often into his own company, by which he confirmed his native gentleness. And if during this time he expressed any error, it was that he kept himself too much retired, and at too great a distance with all his inferiors, and his clothes seemed to prove that he put too great a value on his parts and parentage. This may be some account of his disposition and of the employment of his time till he was master of arts, which was anno 1615, and in the year 1619 he was chosen orator for the university. His two precedent orators were Sir Robert Naughton and Sir Francis Nethersole. The first was not long after made Secretary of State, and Sir Francis, not very long after his being orator, was made Secretary to the Lady Elizabeth, Queen of Bohemia. In this place of orator, our George Herbert continued eight years, and managed it with as becoming and grave a gaiety as any had ever before or since his time. For he had acquired great learning, and was blessed with a high fancy, a civil and sharp wit, and with a natural elegance, both in his behavior, his tongue, and his pen. Of all which there might be very many particular evidences, but I will limit myself to the mention of but three. And the first notable occasion of showing his fitness for this employment of orator was manifested in a letter to King James upon the occasion of his sending that university his book called Basilicon Doron, 
and their orator was to acknowledge this great honor and return their gratitude to his majesty for such a condescension at the close of which letter he writ quid vaticanam bodleianumque abjicis hospes unicus est nobis bibliotheca liber this letter was writ in such excellent latin was so full of conceits and all the expressions so suited to the genius of the king that he inquired the orator's name and then asked william earl of pembroke if he knew him whose answer was that he knew him very well and that he was his kinsman but he loved him more for his learning and virtue than for that he was of his name and family at which answer the king smiled and asked the earl leave that he might love him too for he took him to be the jewel of that university the next occasion he had and took to show his great abilities was with them to show also his great affection to that church in which he received his baptism and of which he professed himself a member and the occasion was this there was one andrew melvin a minister of the scotch church and rector of st andrews who by a long and constant converse with a discontented part of that clergy which opposed episcopacy became at last to be a chief leader of that faction and had proudly appeared to be so to king james when he was but king of that nation who the second year after his coronation in england convened a part of the bishops and other learned divines of his church to attend him at hampton court in order to a friendly conference with some dissenting brethren both of this and the church of scotland of which scotch party andrew melvin was one and he being a man of learning and inclined to satirical poetry had scattered many malicious bitter verses against our liturgy our ceremonies and our church government which were by some of that party so magnified for the wit that they were therefore brought into westminster school where mr george herbert then and often after made such answers to them and such reflections on him and his kirk as might unbeguile any man that was not too deeply pre-engaged in such a quarrel but to return to mr melvin at hampton court conference he there appeared to be a man of an unruly wit of a strange confidence of so furious a zeal and of so ungoverned passions that his insolence to the king and others at this conference lost him both his rectorship of st andrews and his liberty too for his former verses and his present reproaches there used against the church and state caused him to be committed prisoner to the tower of london where he remained very angry for three years at which time of his commitment he found the lady arabella stuart an innocent prisoner there and he pleased himself much in sending the next day after his commitment these two verses to the good lady which i will underwrite because they may give the reader a taste of his others which were like these causa tibi mecum est communis carceris arabella tibi causu est 
Araque sacra mihi.